This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Kelly. This week's guest is Colorado U.S. Senator Cory Gardner. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by Bayer. As a company devoted to making our mission, science for a better life, a reality, Bayer takes pride in equipping growers and consumers with the tools they need to get the job done. Whether that's producing a quality harvest to feed a growing world population or protecting a beloved garden landscape from damaging pests. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Republican Senator Cory Gardner next. Today's innovative technologies have led to safer, more sustainable agriculture practices that are better for our families and the world we call home. And a brighter future awaits thanks to the research and innovation that lie at the core of Bayer's commitment to agriculture and our society. We believe by relying on sound scientific principles, the industry as a whole can continue to meet the challenges posed by a rapidly growing and changing world. For more information, visit cropscience.bayer.us. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. U.S. Senator Cory Gardner is a fifth-generation Coloradan. His family has deep roots in agriculture with a farm implement business that's been in operation for over a hundred years. Gardner is well-versed in the cyclical nature of the agriculture industry. You know, we had a couple great years in agriculture. We had a couple of great years uh, just a couple years back when we had record high commodity prices. We uh, saw some incredible export opportunities. Uh, we saw some very good crops. But we've seen a lot of that change recently. We've seen uh, the strength of the dollar increase, so we've seen exports hurt as a result of that. And if you're in Colorado and you're exporting wheat, uh, that's about not, almost 90% of our wheat crop gets exported uh, overseas. It's you know 300 plus million dollars worth of beef exports just a couple years back, uh, livestock exports just a couple years back. And so uh, when you see that sort of dollar uh, strengthen and those export markets get hurt a little bit, and then you see commodity prices uh, where they are, you talk to some of these guys who are uh, in the in the feed yards, and and they're hurting as well. So. Uh, you know, agriculture is facing another tough time, and while people brag about the fact that a state like Colorado has 2.9% unemployment, that's great, but we have to recognize that there are parts of Colorado that don't have it nearly as good as Denver in the Front Range or perhaps urban corridors around the nation. Mm -hmm. And so we've got to make sure that we're always keeping an eye on agriculture and never losing sight that while some parts of the economy are doing great and we're excited about it, that not every part, including agriculture, is doing as well. Do you think the safety net that we approved in the last Farm Bill is going to be adequate to hold up through this period of time? Well, I think that was one of the, the concerns about the Farm Bill at the time that it was written, uh, that uh, the good times wouldn't always be the case and that you have to build a Farm Bill not for uh, what is happening just in the now, but what you anticipate happening over the next year, two, three, four, five years and the economy because it is about building a safety net. So I think everybody agrees that uh, we want to get government out of the way uh, to, to allow agriculture to work so that you're not, uh, you're not uh, farming because of some government program, but you're farming because that's your business model and you know how to make that business model succeed. But we also have to recognize that when the Farm Bill was written, uh, agriculture was uh, facing a different economic circumstance and to make sure that we constantly keep that in mind as we move forward with uh, policies, uh, some of which are just barely begun implementation of. Technology is an issue, and obviously you've, you've seen that in the farm machinery business from an in-farm all to a quad track. There's, there's quite a bit of difference. Consumers have been had a tendency to accept the farm machine, but now that we're talking about seed technology, there is a debate in the Senate Agriculture Committee and ultimately perhaps to the Senate about whether foods that have an ingredient that came from a genetically enhanced crop 
should have a mandatory or a voluntary label. Where do you see this? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And the, and the issue and the question of technology, I think, is a great one for agriculture. I spoke to a group of cellular phone providers, and we were talking about how uh, I think there's a lot of people who don't understand farming that may look at agriculture and say, uh, you know, th- they wouldn't predict that farmers and ranchers are some of the earliest adopters of new technology. But those of us from agriculture know that we are the earliest adopters of any new technology that can help with productivity. Uh, I'll never forget the first time that we sold a, a GPS uh, a combine with an AFS system, again, case case combines. Uh, and uh, we had a gentleman who was about 75 years old that we were selling it to, and we were a little bit worried that because we didn't understand the technology, we were worried how he was going to understand the technology. And uh, he assured me that he knew exactly how to make this new technology work because he used to work at Radio Shack in the 1950s. <laughs> and so so he was better at it than we were uh, by far and away. So he was, he was right. But, you know, when it comes to the arguments over food and labeling, I think uh, there are questions of research that we have to answer to people because we're, we're uh, more than a generation removed right now from the farm. The vast majority of Americans today are, uh, you know, it used to be that maybe their their parents farmed, but today not even their parents were necessarily involved in agriculture. And so we're further and further removed from production agriculture. And if we're going to remain feeding the world, if we're going to continue to provide food for the world, we have to recognize that research, science, technological developments of our, our crops are important. And that leads you directly into uh, seed technology and other types of production. If you have a patchwork kind of situation across the country that leads to different states having different labeling requirements, uh, Colorado different than Kansas, Kansas different than Nebraska, Nebraska different than Ohio, uh, you're going to drive the cost uh, of compliance through the roof, sky high. And we know through decades worth of science uh, that our food is safe, uh, the technology has been proven safe, and so we should make sure that we have a, a labeling situation where there is no one state that can drive costs or labels in other states simply because they did it first. Some would wonder if this is not a, day, a debate that ultimately is, is uh, questioning the effectiveness of our regulatory system on foods. If they say it's safe, then, then why or what reason is there to give a label? Well, I, I get concerned sometimes that perhaps it's uh, people wanting to undermine uh, that science that has been well-documented and well-researched. Uh, I'm concerned that some may look at it as a, a marketing approach. Uh, they know the science, but they figure they can play on people's fears or uh, concerns and use it as a marketing place so they can gain market share. That's pitting one section of agriculture or uh, the food industry against another section of agriculture or the food industry, and I just don't think that's that's right because we have to be in this together. There's not enough of us to be fighting each other. Uh, and so I, I think that uh, the Roberts legislation uh, was Pat Roberts, a senator from Nebraska, chairman of the Agriculture Committee, had a solution that I supported um, that, that would have eliminated this uh, this 50-state approach and created a, a standard that we could live by as a country, had a lot of support from uh, minority uh, organizations in the Congress on the Hill uh, who re- recognized that if you do something else, it could drive up the cost at the grocery store and make it uh, out of reach, unaffordable for uh, many who are lower income in our country. And I also think that uh, when you look at Colorado's own experience in 2014, there was a uh, initiative on the ballot that would have required a, a very strict labeling regime in Colorado when it came to uh, food labeling, and it failed overwhelmingly. So we know where the people of Colorado are. In the House, they have resolved the GM labeling issue. In the House, they've also resolved the waters of the U.S. situation with the Environmental Protection Agency, suggesting that that branch of the administration had overstepped its bounds. The Senate failed again recently. 
It's absolutely frustrating to see the waters of the United States uh, remain the policy of the EPA, the Army Corps of Engineers. It's got to be stopped. It's an affront to our water rights. In Colorado, if you go into the state capitol, one of the first things you'll see is a mural that's painted on the, the rotunda walls, and it says, here is a land, I'm going to paraphrase this, uh, here is a land where history is written in water. Uh, we take it seriously in the West because it's so scarce. Uh, and to think that we have a federal agency that can now insert itself into uh, Colorado water rights and laws, uh, it's just uh, unfathomable. Uh, and if you if you look at the amount of waterways affected in Colorado, we're talking, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of miles of, of, of riverways, waterways that are affected. Uh, Colorado alone, the EPA's own studies have said that two-thirds of our state's waterways are intermittent flow, meaning they don't have water in them year-round, and yet they're going to regulate them. So uh, that is something that Congress should stop. Now, we were able to put a, a, a repeal on the president's desk uh, through what's called a, a Congressional uh, Disapproval Act, uh, Congressional Resolution Disapproval, and that was vetoed by the president. Uh, the good news is we still have a stay in by the 6th uh, District Court uh, that's preventing this from moving forward, but that's not good enough, and that doesn't give us the certainty that we need long term. And so uh, I hope that common sense will prevail. We'll continue to follow the actions of the House, and we will permanently uh, reverse this decision uh, of the regulatory agencies to proceed with WOTUS, the Waters of the United States. Do you see another legislative attempt, or is this ultimately destined for the Supreme Court, which is a legislative issue now on its own? Yeah, I, I, there will continue to be attempts because we can't just let this go. The, it, the stakes are too high. Water isn't too important. The rights that we fought for for over a century in, in Colorado and other states, uh, we can't just uh, turn this over to the federal government. So uh, we will continue this fight through the appropriations process. In the past, we've had some success in limiting funds to implement the regulation prohibiting the implementation of waters of the United States. Uh, again, the courts have this stay in place right now, an injunction against its implementation, but we'll continue look for leg every legislative avenue that we can to protect uh, our country's water from federal overreach. Is water the new oil for the U.S.? It's a great question. Look, I think in Colorado, water's always been uh, the most sacred of commodities, and other states are going to, to discover that soon. I live above the Ogallala Aquifer in the, the Republican River area, and the litigation between Kansas, Colorado, and, and Nebraska is kind of legendary, uh, but it's also over a, a, a finite resource. And if you look at the Ogallala Aquifer, that is a declining source of water over uh, which lies some of the most uh, abundant fertile agricultural lands in the country. Uh, that's why a place like Yuma County, Colorado, can sometimes be the nation's number one corn producing county, beating out Iowa counties in corn production. Now, there's a couple reasons for that. Number one, we're about six times bigger than any single Iowa county. Uh, but number two, we have irrigation uh, and that allows us to, to grow and produce that and technological advancements that have allowed us to do that in years past. We've seen some acres taken out. You don't see us hit that number one spot uh, anymore. Uh, but Water is going to be a continued fight. We have a drought bill that is being negotiated in the Energy and Natural Resources Committee. I spent a lot of time on the phone talking to the Colorado River Water Conservancy District and Northern Colorado Water Conservancy District with the Colorado Water Conservation Board about the impact of legislation being proposed by a senator from Arizona, what it means to the senators from California, how the, the states within the, the, the compact of the Colorado River are going to be uh, affected. Uh, and that's just our little corner of the world. You can imagine when you're dealing with the Mississippi and the Missouri and the Ohio and so many other important waterways through our country, 
and so many important aquifers throughout our country, like the Ogallala, which sits below, you know, Texas, Nebraska, Kansas, Colorado, uh, Oklahoma, South Dakota, uh, major important issues that are going to have to be addressed in the near future. Is this left to states and for states to work among themselves? Is this federal that requires legislation, or does it fall into regulation? Well, I think if you look at some approaches, they would say, hey, this, uh, there's nothing that the federal government can't regulate or can't get involved with, and I'm very concerned about that approach. Uh, water, to me, is a state issue. It's a state right. It's, it's covered by state water laws, and that's where this, uh, the majority of these decisions, well, all these decisions should be made. Uh, and if they need federal involvement, then they should be the ones coming to the state of, to the federal government saying, hey, uh, w- can you do this? Can you do that? Because we need you to do this. We can't do it on our own. That's different than the federal government getting involved in the first place and saying, we think we know better than you, because that's what would happen if Washington got involved, is they would tell Colorado, Kansas, Nebraska, Iowa how to do things. That's not the way it should work. Uh, the states have primacy. The states' rights matter. State water rights certainly matter. They should be the ones dictating and finding the solutions that work for them and not Washington trying to drive down a decision on them. If you talk to commodity groups as well, they'll also share that they feel like perhaps the Endangered Species Act is now being used against farming and against agriculture. Is it time to revisit that? Well, I think the purposes of the Endangered Species Act were very noble, and I think everybody would agree with that, that we should protect species that are on the brink of extinction or endangered uh, from being lost forever. Uh, that's a very noble uh, cause. But w- what's happened, though, is we've seen sort of a... a, a uh, abuse of the Endangered Species Act to stop activities that some people don't like, whether it's uh, drilling for fossil fuels, whether it's uh, grazing on public lands. That was never the intention of the Endangered Species Act. And so where we see it being abused, then yes, Congress needs to take a look at it and stop the abuse and make sure that the original noble cause uh, is being delivered upon. Uh, and that's to recover the species and then to delist the species. Uh, right now, we've seen a lot of species listed with very few success stories when it comes to delisting. At that point, it's not working the way it should be. So yes, we ought to look at uh, why we aren't having the success that we should have had with it and uh, could have with it if we had better cooperation between uh, local governments, the state governments, uh, local private landowners, uh, state governments, and, and the federal government. And I'll also add to that that a lot of times when you come in with a federal listing, it drives a wedge. It builds a wall between uh, the private landowner and the federal government. And so at a time when cooperation and partnership is critical to the to accomplishing the goal of the Endangered Species Act, uh, the federal government comes in with a heavy hand and basically drives the wedge in between making that cooperation impossible. Uh, so you look at the sage-grouse in, in western Colorado. Um, we've done a tremendous amounts of work, millions of dollars, of local uh, conservation efforts to recover uh, the sage-grouse, and it's working. But if the federal government comes in with a heavy hand and lists it as endangered, then uh, then we have this wall that prevents people from working together like they should uh, to recover it. We didn't have a listing on the sage-grouse, thanks to a lot of people who showed that local governments and individuals could make a difference. But now we have to worry about the land-use management plans that are going to be a part of uh, the decision that the Department of Interior made. They didn't list it as endangered or threatened, but they said, hey, uh, let's have some land-use management plans uh, in, in place for it. Excuse me, they didn't list it as endangered. Uh, but uh, they now have land-use management plans that could do the same thing through a backdoor effort of, of taking land out of use or out of reach or off the table for resource development and use. 
if you're close to the Mississippi River or the other tributaries that flow to that where so many commodities go down the Mighty Muddy and, and then off to customers around the world, uh, they talk about infrastructure and the locks and dams. I don't know that as much attention has been given to the railways and how important that is to the West. Some work has been done for public-private partnership, but, but Senator, what else needs to be done for the rail infrastructure to make sure that your part of the world is well served. You bet. In fact, I'll tell you a story. You mentioned uh, the Mississippi River. Uh, I'll never forget the first time I saw the Mississippi River. Uh, I was driving across the country uh, from Colorado to Washington, D.C., because I was actually working for a a trade association, the National Corn Growers Association in Washington. Uh, And uh, I drove across the Mississippi River, and it was just, I mean, to see how much water was there and how wide this thing was. You know, for Colorado, we call a river that uh, if you actually put a, a kayak in, in my part of the, the world, uh, it'd probably damn the thing up. Uh, but uh, it is incredible to see the infrastructure that we put together, and that's the waterways and the locks and dam systems that we have in place around uh, the Midwest and the Missouri and the Mississippi, uh, the locks to, to transport our, our, our commodities. But also I think it's important to recognize the need for transportation infrastructure like highways, like roads, like a a sound bridge system to make sure that we have it all together um, to to get our commodities to and from the marketplace. When it comes to railroads specifically, uh, critically important to Colorado agriculture, we were able to, I serve on the Commerce Committee, the first senator from Colorado in nearly 40 years to serve on the Commerce Committee. We have jurisdiction over uh, the railroads, the Freight Rail Administration, and uh, one of the things we did when we reauthorized the FRA was to make sure that uh, there's a, a seat at the table for agricultural interests so that we don't have some pricing issues that we've seen uh, occur in the past, particularly when uh, the, the oil boom was at its height and we seem to have sort of a squeeze out of availability uh, of rail cars when it came to use for agriculture. I'm a co-sponsor of the, the short-line rail tax credit uh, to make sure that we can keep some of those short lines in business and operation because uh, if you're living out in some areas of Colorado, you don't have a main line, uh, you know, Burlington Northern or, or uh, other railroad operations, you have a short line. And we've got to make sure that they are able to meet the economics of their times uh, to be able to continue an operation. Have you formed an opinion yet on the Trans-Pacific Partnership? I think trade is critically important to agriculture. If you look at Colorado alone, uh, we've we've increased our, our exports to Canada and Mexico by over 300% since 1994. If you look at just uh, basically the time frame of 2003 to 2013, uh, overall trade exports uh, uh, to our, our free trade agreement countries has increased by over 30%. And a lot of that's driven by, by beef exports from Colorado, uh, but we've got a lot of, of, of grain exports as well that add into that. Trade is so vital to the future of agriculture. It's one of those value-added opportunities that we have that we've got to continue to capitalize on. I supported Trade Promotion Authority. Uh, I think that uh, once we find out that uh, and, and are, are certain that the tra- Trans-Pacific Partnership is, uh, is what we believed it to be by reading the details that have been sort of in final negotiations, that it will be a, a good agreement that I can support and that we should all support. Uh, because it's good for America, it's fair to America, it's good for Colorado agriculture, it's good for American agriculture. Uh, look, if, if we don't if we don't enter into uh, agreements like uh, TPP, then Japan and our other trade partners are going to look to somebody else for their agricultural goods. They're going to look to Australia. They're going to look to to Brazil. They're going to look to other nations uh, to provide goods, uh, to provide food, to provide beef. Uh, And we're going to lose out on that market. And shame on us. And for the most part, we've already lowered our our barriers and tariffs uh, for entry to our markets. 
Uh, and so why on earth are we sitting here saying, hey, let's object to things where they actually have to lower their tariffs and their market barriers? So uh, let's enjoy some of the benefits of this bargain that would tear down other countries' access barriers so that we can start enjoying access to their markets and making it good for Colorado and America's agricultural products. Senator Gardner, it's a real joy to have you as a part of Open Mic. We look forward to future opportunities. It is Open Mic, and, sir, you have an open forum. Well, no, thank you very much for this uh, opportunity to visit with you. I know I've got a lot of people that I grew up with who continue to listen. Uh, you know, I'll never forget the first time I ran for state legislature. I would go around the district introducing myself uh, as, hey, I'm the guy that you met at the implement dealership. I've sold half of you the wrong parts. And everybody was shaking their heads, yeah, you have. And I think I was offended. I quit using that that, that line. But, you know, it's a, it's a proud family tradition that I have in agriculture. And I want nothing more than our children to be able to be a part of that tradition, uh, to be a part of that business, to be able to make a living, uh, to enjoy the quality of life of rural America. We have to, in this country, figure out a way to not only keep existing generations of farms and ranches on the farm and ranch, but how do we bring new people into our communities, new people into our farms and ranches so that we can continue our heritage of feeding and providing the food and fiber for the world. And it's policies that tear down barriers and uh, federal regulations. It's policies that uh, make it easier for people to have access to the capital they need. It's not cheap to buy a, a quarter of ground in Nebraska or Colorado or a, a, new, a new combine or tractor, the implements that you need to make the business work. Uh, and the capital that's required, we've got to figure out ways to help young farmers get started. We've got to make sure that our communities have broadband technologies because our, our tractors are computers now. They're not just engines and mechanics, uh, not just ball bearings, as, uh, as they would say. This is uh, incredible, sophisticated equipment that uh, more powerful than uh, the, the first lunar landing uh, in terms of computing capacity. So we've got to make sure that we continue our focus on infrastructure in rural America and that we continue making sure that the graduates of high schools today in rural America realize that, you know what, rural America is a great place to live, a great place to work, and they want to continue to return there to make it more successful than ever. And we need a federal government that cooperates in that partnership and that desire. Our thanks to Colorado U.S. Senator Cory Gardner, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by Bayer. As a company devoted to making our mission, Science for a Better Life, a reality, Bayer takes pride in equipping growers and consumers with the tools they need to get the job done. Whether that's producing a quality harvest to feed a growing world population or protecting a beloved garden landscape from damaging pests. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Daly.